of course, I know we all realize we're referring to the day of Pentecost, but I just want to want you to appreciate the buildup to it and that what happened on the day of Pentecost was something that had never, ever happened before in the history of the earth. And the reason why it happened this way, we're going to see, is also very, very important. Why it did not happen ever before and what it has to do also with the new covenant that we're talking about. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The, the subject I uh, wanted to discuss a little bit further kind of follows on from what we've been talking about so far is uh, the promise of the Father. And the promise of the Father is related to what we've covered as far as the progression of this plan of salvation as it was revealed and then as it was carried out. But it's a very, it's a very, very significant uh, promise, really. It is the, 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 the effective ingredient of what Christ came to earth to accomplish, this promise of the Father. There is no greater promise than this one, as, as we shall see. And uh, it is really the full outpouring of all the treasures of heaven. Anyway, let's look at the verse that mentions it, and it'll uh, it'll be self-explanatory. Luke 24 and verse 49. Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. Gospel of Luke. Of course, this is towards the end of uh, the time that Christ was spending with his disciples. Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. And it says here, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he tells them about this promise of the Father. This is shortly before the ascension of Christ, right? So this is after the cross, before he fully ascended to his Father. And uh, he tells them that this promise is soon to come. So that means up until this point, where he was speaking with his disciples, that promise was not there yet. Isn't that right? It was coming. The promise of the Father was not yet fulfilled or realized. He says, listen, you need to wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send you this thing called the promise of the Father. And then you need to wait for it in Jerusalem. So we want to understand the significance of what was going to come a little bit better. Now, we have to remember here, this is Christ, like I said, uh, on the Mount of Olives sometime here. You know, we have it on our timeline, so I'm going to put it up. This is very tricky. Okay. So after Christ rose on the first day of the week, we know he spent how many days with his disciples? Anyone remember? 40 days, that is correct. He spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection. And then there is 10 days here after. Until uh, the day of Pentecost. So this is on just a few minutes before Christ is ascending. He's standing on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And his parting words, this is what was high on his mind. He says, wait a little bit in Jerusalem. I'm going to send you this promise of the Father. And so I don't want us to miss this point. According to Jesus, the promise of the Father 
up until this point in history was not yet given. Isn't that right? That's what we understand from his words. Because he's telling his disciples, wait in Jerusalem, it's, I'm going to send it to you soon. Something new was going to come called the promise of the Father. And it was high on Christ's mind that his disciples understand that and expect that and look forward to that. And the other thing we need to uh, also make a note of from this verse is this promise of the Father has to do with being endued with power from on high. That's what the verse says, right? So there are three elements that we can... This is really a prophecy. What we're doing here is we're studying a prophecy that Jesus gave. It's not a long-term prophecy. It's a short one, but it's a prophecy nonetheless. There are three elements here. The promise of the Father was not yet given up until this point. It would soon come in Jerusalem, and it has to do with being endued with power from on high. These are the elements of the prophecy, the things that we look for to find the fulfillment of that promise. Let's go to the book of Acts and find the parallel text here where Luke picks up the story where he left off in his gospel. Acts chapter 1. And we look at verses 4 and 5. Again here, Jesus is spelling out what's about to happen. And I really want to take it slow and, and to really appreciate the impact of what Christ was telling them. Luke chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. And notice how Luke again records the same thing. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. Same thing, right? Verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but he shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So this is on day number 40, at this point here. And Christ is telling them, in a few days, they need to wait in Jerusalem because in a few days they will receive the promise of the Father. And now he gives us more details as to what this promise of the Father is. He calls it a baptism and it's called the baptism of what? I'm going to write this here. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want us to think about that for a minute. So the promise of the Father is really the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And according to Jesus, this had not yet happened ever before. Correct? Because he's telling his disciples, wait for it, I'm going to send it. It's never been sent before, it's never been fulfilled before. They had to wait in Jerusalem. In a few days, this baptism of the Holy Spirit would come. Of course, I know we all realize we're referring to the day of Pentecost. But I just want to want you to appreciate the build-up to it and that what happened on the day of Pentecost was something that had never, ever happened before in the history of the earth. And the reason why it happened this way, we're going to see, is also very, very important. Why it did not happen ever before and what it has to do also with the new covenant that we were talking about. Now, like I said, there's some markers here as to the fulfillment of this prophecy. This prophecy had a marker in time, according to Jesus, to Jesus here, the marker in time was what? Not many days hence. In a few days from this point, this promise would be fulfilled. This baptism of the Holy Spirit would come for the first time. The other marker is 
it had to happen in a particular location. The location is Jerusalem. So they were to stay, this is what we look for for the fulfillment of the prophecy. They had to stay in Jerusalem in a few days for the very first time there would be this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, we cannot break the words of Christ and the prophecy of Christ and say, no, no, this prophecy has been fulfilled at some other place at some other time. This is very significant. This is a prophecy given by Christ. The reason being, and I'm going to come to the reason in a little while, some people are a little bit uncomfortable with the conclusion that nobody before this point ever experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But we're just simply reading the words of Christ. So if, if you do not like what I say, I did not come up with it, okay? You, have, you take it up with Jesus. I, but I just want to emphasize that. That's why I really want to take it easy and look at that. Because this, brothers and sisters, is very, very significant. This was high on Christ's mind when he was leaving. This baptism of the Holy Spirit. And someone will say, well, hold on a minute. Are you trying to say there was no Holy Spirit working all over here in the Old Testament? That's not what we're saying. There was no question that the Holy Spirit was working with God's faithful people, Abraham and Daniel and, and all kinds of faithful people all throughout. But none of these workings and manifestations of the power and of the Spirit of God, none of them are called the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father is this special, significant thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what Christ was referring to. It was something that even though Christ was with them all this time, even before he died in his ministry, none of his disciples had ever experienced this baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was going to go and then he was going to send it to them. He basically said, just wait for it. It's coming. So my point is just simply, let us stick to what Christ said and not try and change it because it might not suit what we think or what we like. Because sometimes this is what ends up happening. Ends up happening. So this is a prophecy from the master prophet himself. Acts chapter 1, we're still there. Let's look at verse 8. He says a little bit more about this promise. Chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So here is the reception of the Spirit. It has to do with the reception of power. That's why he said in Luke, Wait in Jerusalem till I send you the promise of the Father, and you will be endued with power from on high. So this is, these are all synonymous terms. The promise of the Father is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is the reception of power. Not that God's power was not working here, but... Christ was talking about another level, another level of power. Something was going to be different from this point on called the promise of the Father. What in the world was Christ talking about? That's what we want to discover. What is so different and what is the significance of that? So I just don't want to misunderstand. I don't want to say because something different is here. It doesn't mean that there was no Holy Spirit here or there was no power here. There definitely was. But all these manifestations of the Spirit and of power were not like what's coming. Something of another level or another, uh, you know, another stage was coming. Let's look at John 16. John chapter 16. Why are we saying this is a prophecy? Let's go to the Gospel of John chapter 16, where Jesus talks about the same thing. And now he emphasizes it a bit more. 
John chapter 16, verse 7. What this promise is tied to. John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. He's talking about the same thing. When he was leaving his disciples, he says, I'm going to leave and I will send you the promise of the Father shortly. Elsewhere he says, I will in a few days, not many days hence, send you the promise of the Father and you will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus says, I'm going to depart and send you the comforter. If I don't depart, he will not come. He's talking about the same thing all these times. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. And over here, the he calls it the comforter, right? All these things are synonymous terms that are used by Christ to indicate something is coming. Something that was not there before. That's the point. And I know to some of us this might sound a little bit strange. Well, you know, the Spirit was always there. We're going to see what, what difference there is, if there is a difference. But why did Christ have to leave? We, I think from when we understand the Scripture correctly, when we understand what the Scripture means when it talks about Spirit, it helps us understand why Jesus himself had to go before this Comforter, which we understand to be the Holy Spirit, of course, could come. Because the Holy Spirit is not a different person to Christ. It's not a different being to Christ. It is actually the very life of Christ himself, correct? It's not someone else. So in other words, Jesus was telling his disciples something had to happen to him. He had to go and something had to happen before this Comforter could come before this promise of the Father could be realized, before they could receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is tied with the departure of Christ. And that's why when he was actually leaving the earth, he repeated that promise to them as well. <clears throat> Let's look at chapter uh, John chapter 7 and see what John there records for us. Jesus speaking also of the same thing. John 7 verse 38 and 39. It's interesting how so many scriptures actually refer to the same thing and talk about the same thing. John 7, verse 38, Jesus speaking, says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So here it tells us, Christ here, this is before his death, somewhere here. He again makes this promise, this prophecy. It says, if you believe on me, you will have... Yeah, he likens, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's rich, abundant, outpouring. And then the apostle puts in brackets an explanation. He says he was speaking here about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that the believers would receive. Because at this point, when Jesus spoke these words, that spirit was not yet given. And the reason was, Jesus was not yet glorified. So Christ, when he was departing, he was essentially telling his disciples, I need to go away and be glorified. 
in order for you to receive the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the sending of the Comforter. And when this comes, it will be in you as rivers of living water flowing out of your belly. Not a creek or a pond or a lake. Is the picture he's using signifies an overabundance, rivers of living water flowing. In other words, God was planning to pour out the Spirit in such a measure that had never, ever been seen before. Not only in measure would it be more, but there is a certain quality to the measure that he would pour that was not seen before as well. This was the emphasis of Christ here. And of course, like we said, it would be in Jerusalem. It would be in a few days after Christ uh, ascended. And it would be a particular event where the Spirit would be poured out with power, it we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Christ had to go and be glorified for all this to happen. So this is a very interesting little prophecy we're looking at here together. Let me read you the statement from the Spirit of Prophecy because I know that what I'm sharing can be a little bit uncomfortable for some as, as to its ramifications. But here is this statement from page 37, Acts of the Apostles. During the patriarchal age, that's back here, the influence of the Holy Spirit had often been revealed in a marked manner, but never in its fullness. So all this time, the influence of God, the Holy Spirit, the power and working of God was revealed many times in marked manners, but never in its fullness. Interesting. Why never in its fullness? And what difference does it make here? Is God favoring a group of people living here? And not the group of people. Why, why is it this way? We, that's what we want to discover. That's what we want to explore. And so, like I said, the spirit was working, but there is something else. The difference comes down to, of course, the person of Jesus Christ. Because he said, unless I go away and be glorified, essentially, the spirit will not come. Why did something have to have to happen to Christ? You see, when... When Jesus, yes, he had to be glorified. What, but why is that? What, what effect does that have on the Spirit? When Christ was born here, somewhere here, well, let's, on our timeline, somewhere here, we'll put the word made flesh, right? At this point, Christ was born as a man. And when the word was made flesh, this was the first time ever in the history of the whole universe that you had a divine being who became a human being, the Son of God. The Bible says his name was called what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. We never had this before, ever. And when Christ was born as a man, like we said earlier, I think, he took on humanity permanently. He, he fused divinity and humanity. He didn't just put humanity you know, as a cloak. He actually fused in a mysterious process he married his divinity to humanity permanently for the first time ever and he lived a life of complete victory over sin and satan for 33 years right this had never ever been seen or witnessed before as a matter of fact the bible says he condemned sin in the flesh nobody living here had ever accomplished what christ accomplished all these people were sinners the most righteous and holy of them maybe enoch would be high on that list right he was a sinner. Christ is the only human being to ever exist, to have never committed a single sin, to have defeated sin and Satan every single time. And he condemned sin in the flesh perfectly. 
And in so doing, he lived a life and obtained an experience that nobody ever had before. A life of perfect victory over sin. Zero sins committed, right? Not a single one, not even by a thought, we're told. And when Jesus came, of course, uh, Emmanuel is one of his names, but the name we know him most often with is the name Jesus. I'm going to put this here. Or as some people would say in the Hebrew, uh, Yeshua, okay? Or whoever want to spell it. I'm not going to get into the spelling and pronunciation of that, but anyway, because enough, there's enough discussions on that. But his name in Hebrew is Yeshua, Jesus. Uh, this person did not exist before. Jesus began his existence here. Jesus is his name, the name of the Son of God as a human being. Now, I'm not saying Christ did not exist. The Son of God always existed ever since he was begotten of the Father. But he existed all during this time as a divine being only. For the first time, now he takes on humanity. And when he takes on humanity, the angel tells Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. And now Jesus is his name as a divine human being. He became a new person, so to speak. He retained his divinity. He's still the son of God. But now he took on a new element, the son of man. And as a new person here, he lived and obtained an experience that had never, ever been accomplished or obtained before. This is the mechanics of the plan of salvation. This was fulfilling the conditions of this covenant he had made with his father. And he did that, he took that to the cross, and then after the cross, he tells his disciples, listen, I need to go away, and I'm going to send you the promise of the Father in a few days. This promise of the Father is this baptism of the Holy Spirit. But before that had to happen, he had to be glorified. And so this is, this is why, I, I don't want us to miss the point, we use the name of Jesus a lot. But every time the New Testament uses the name Jesus, it is a reference to his humanity. There is no Jesus in the Old Testament. There was no human divine being in the Old Testament. It didn't exist. It's from the New Testament era, from here on. And this emphasis, brothers and sisters, this is the most important event in the history of the universe. When we get to heaven, we're going to be singing about this event when Christ came as a man and he defeated sin and Satan as a man. This is when salvation was accomplished. This is when Satan was defeated. It was on the cross. Well, specifically when Christ rose from the dead. But this, this period here is the most important period ever. It's the most important event. And so, humanity and divinity are married for the first time. And this is where Christ was leaving earth and going to his Father as a man. And he was going to be glorified as a man. And this is why he told his disciples, wait, something now is going to come to you that could never come before. But now that I am a man and I am going to my Father, I'm going to be glorified as a man. And then I can give you something that heaven has been longing to, do, to give for all this time, but Christ had to come and accomplish that before this happened. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1 and see what happened in heaven when Christ went as far as his glorification. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8 and 9. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 and 9. This is in heaven. It says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the Father speaking to his Son. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. 
Here is Christ, the Son, being spoken to by the Father, and He is anointed. He is anointed with the oil of gladness. What does that signify? What's the oil, of, what's the oil a symbol of usually in the Scriptures? The Spirit. So He is anointed here by the Holy Spirit. This is really the glorification of Christ. This is how He was anointed for, for, to begin His high priestly office in the heavenly sanctuary. And what is the reason that he is anointed by the Father? It gives us the reason in the verse. Because he loved righteousness, righteousness and hated iniquity. When did Christ demonstrate a love for righteousness and a hatred for iniquity? <laughs> All through his life on earth where he met sin and Satan day in and day out. And each time he demonstrated he loved righteousness, he hated iniquity. And he did that all the way till he died on the cross. Brothers and sisters, Christ lived a brand new life. It was a brand new ex existence, a brand new experience. And all this experience, all these things that he accomplished, loving righteousness and hating iniquity, overcoming sin every time, all these things are packaged in this life that he lived here on earth. And so he's about to leave to take this life. It's now a part of his being. It's who he is. That's what taking humanity was all about. He's taking this life to heaven to have it approved and glorified by his father. His father recognizes it. He approves it. He glorifies his son as a man. And that's when Jesus says, listen, you just wait a few days because then I'm going to send you the promise of the father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we know this has to do with his very own person or his very own life. In other words, brothers and sisters, the fuller outpouring of the Spirit, the greater measure of the outpouring of the Spirit and the greater quality to the Spirit on this side is that now the Spirit comes to us with this added benefit and this rich experience that Christ accomplished for 33 years. Something that was not yet seen before. They'd never seen this before. They believed, they look forward to it. They wish they would see it and experience it. Christ here accomplished it. And even here, after his, res his resurrection, he waited with his disciples. But he told them, wait, it's coming. It had to be first approved by his father. In Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, we're just reading about this approval. Where he's now anointed with the spirit, uh, the oil of gladness, the spirit. And as such, he immediately, as soon as this happened in heaven, he immediately fulfilled his promise and he poured out the Spirit, which was the baptism of the Spirit, which we see on the day of Pentecost. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, is really telling us what happened in heaven on the day of Pentecost. And of course, the corresponding event on earth, we're quite familiar with that. But let's see what Peter says about it. Acts chapter 2. Let's just see how this is recorded as a fulfillment of this particular promise of the Father. Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. Peter here preaching. We know that this is the first sermon there on the day of Pentecost. Verse 33 says, Therefore, speaking of Christ, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Well, hopefully now it's all coming together. Peter is telling them, listen, this Jesus that you crucified, he is exalted by God the Father. And he has received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. See, rec Peter recognized what was happening in heaven. He was listening when Jesus told him, listen, just wait a few days. It was 10 days ago that he had heard these 
this, these words from the lips of Jesus. And now when the Holy Spirit was poured out, Peter recognized, he says, you know what? Christ has just been exalted in heaven. He received the promise of the Father. What you're seeing here, this outpouring of the Spirit of the day of Pentecost, this is his doing. He has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. This was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit was the pouring out of the Spirit in the fullest measure ever. Because now the Spirit comes with this human element. The Spirit now is no longer only a divine Spirit as it was here. Now it is a divine human Spirit because Christ now has lived as a human for the first time ever. And in the human part of this Spirit is contained all the victories that Christ obtained, all the righteousness that He worked out, all the defeats of Satan, they already come packaged in his life. Amen. Praise the Lord. This is, this is what righteousness by faith is all about. This is why the truth about God, we're talking, I think, over lunch a little bit, as to the practical elements and application of the truth about God. It's not just a theory, and we have our verses and we argue over it. Maybe initially some of us, when we first come into things, we go to our text. But if you take it to the next level, brothers and sisters, and follow logically through what it actually means... To, believe, to, to truly understand that the Spirit is the life of the Son means everything to understanding righteousness by faith. That's how we are made righteous. From this point on is the fulfillment of the promise of the Father. Abraham did not see the fulfillment of the promise of the Father. Enoch didn't. Daniel. All these people that lived before Christ became a man. They did not receive the divine human life of the Son. They only had the divine power of God, the Spirit, which was the divine life of God. They had the assistance of that and many manifestations. But never before was there seen a complete victory over sin, a life that had complete victory over sin. We have that already. All too often, our problem is we go out to try and obtain victories over sin. Just like Christ obtained victories over sin. God is not interested in that. Christ has done it perfectly. He gives us the finished product. We have many times misunderstood the new covenant to be a copycat religion. Christ did it, so can you. Copy what he did. Then where, where do we read about that? I know in Peter it says we are to follow his example. How can you follow his example? You're a sinner. He wasn't. The only way we can successfully do that is to have what he had. And that's what he was talking about with the promise of the Father. It's a very, very powerful thing to understand, brothers and sisters. Notice what Peter says a little later on. Verse 38 and 39. Same chapter, Acts 2, verse 38 and 39. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What's he talking about here when he says the promise? That's the promise of the Father that Jesus promised. That's the promise of the reception of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Something else that had never been available before, but now because Christ as a man has been glorified in heaven, a human being now sits on the right hand of the throne of God. He can share that spirit or that life with us. And that life comes with all these benefits and all these beautiful experiences that Christ had accomplished. Now, the, the reason why I'm emphasizing all this is it truly 
helps us. I don't know if it does this to you, but this is what it does to me. It really highlights and magnifies for me this part of the plan that Jesus lived as a man and accomplished all this. This made so much difference. If you understand this, it says, well, this is what made all the difference. This is where a new element was added to the spirit called the human element that Christ perfected. The human part of that spirit. Because now it's a divine human spirit. Whereas here it was only divine. The reason why I'm emphasizing that, because many times, and I've talked with enough people about this to realize that this is a common, common thought. A lot of people say, well, this, this doesn't seem fair that this side has the promise of the Spirit fulfilled, whereas this side didn't have it. And if it doesn't seem fair, well, this makes God look not fair. And so what you're saying is wrong, brother. This was always there all along. That's keeping God fair. Now, this is a very good motive to want to keep God fair, but we have to remember God does not operate by our standard of what's fair and not fair. In trying to make God fair, we cannot break his word. We just looked at all the promises Jesus made. and It's a prophecy. We cannot break that. And so God actually set it up this way, not me. I'm just telling you about it. And this is not something I came up with. It's, just, it's in the scriptures. God set up the plan of salvation this way because there are certain mechanics in the plan of salvation. It's, it's not just everything goes all over the place and everything just floats up in the air and there's nothing clearly marked. Everything in the plan of salvation, brothers and sisters, is hinging on the fact that Christ became a man and defeated sin and Satan as a man and went back to heaven as a man. That changed things. Things are no longer the same as a result of that. If things have always been the same before and after the cross, then the coming of Christ did nothing. Changed nothing. He just came for show. He came and went and everything is just the same. That totally diminishes what he accomplished. It makes it meaningless and empty. He came and everything changed as a result. We'll see a little bit. And so we just have to be mindful of that because in so doing, when we deny what Christ has clearly and plainly said, we're actually making God a liar in the process of trying to defend God's reputation or God's character or God's fairness. Let's beware that we do not make him a liar in the process because this is what it ends up doing if we reject or deny what he has to say. So that's just a little warning I want to put out there because it's something to, uh, to keep in mind. Now, of course, the promise, the origin of the promise, we looked at that a little earlier this morning, so I'm not going to go all, all over that again. But the promise was revealed in, uh, in the beginning of the plan of salvation. Oh, someone added a little something there in the diagram. Thank you for that. Adam is at the beginning there. That's true. It was revealed to Adam. It was revealed to Abraham when God told Abraham, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. But when God told that to Abraham, did Abraham experience the blessing that God told him in that promise? I want you to think about it carefully because he told Abraham, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. What tense is that? Future, Future tense. And where was the blessing contained? In the seed. Did the seed come here? No. So did Abraham experience and receive this blessing that God intended in this plan? No, he believed it. That's why here it was a promise. Abraham believed God's promise, but that promise continued. And that promise finds its realization here. And the whole thing about the seed blessing all nations is that he came as a man. 
and he took that life that he perfected to heaven and now the results the practical results and benefits of that plan of salvation is what is called the baptism of the holy spirit or the promise of the father or the comforter so am i trying to say that the comforter was not there in the old testament yes there was no comforter that christ promised in the old testament we're going to see that they did have the Spirit of God, but the Comforter is the union of the divine and the human together with all the experiences that Christ accomplished. You see why we're saying this is another level, but if we realize what we have, we will go, wow. Abraham did not have the Comforter that Jesus promised. Didn't Jesus say, if I don't go away, I will, he will not come. But if I go, I will send him. It wasn't there yet, right? Because now the comforter is not just the divine spirit assisting. Now it is the human part as well. And that's what can comfort us. Because what's another word for comforter? The helper, right? What do we need help with? Everything. Everything. Overcoming sin. Here it is. The help is then. That's what Christ accomplished here. And this is what helps us. That's why it is really a sad disaster. When people misunderstand the spirit and make the comforter into another being, it's not Christ. Someone who didn't live or experience humanity or temptation or sin, and this is who is supposed to help us? No wonder we don't have that much help. See, this is on the practical level when you examine the different ideas that exist. The comforter is the glorified human divine life of the Son of God called the promise of the Father and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I don't want to keep going on and on about the same thing, but it's so powerful, brothers and sisters, if we truly grasp a hold of it. And so it was to come. Let's look at John 14. Let's look at some verses. We're familiar with these. John 14, and just see how Jesus puts this. Because I know I'm making some very, <laughs> some very bold claims and startling uh, assertions but i'm just reading the word john 14 verse 16 and 17 john 14 verse 16 and 17 and i will pray the father and he shall give you another comforter what's the tense here future right so that other comforter was not there yet jesus was going to ask the father for it and the father will answer the request of christ and give them this other comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Was he in them at that point? No. That's why we're saying the comforter here was not yet given. And it was not given until Jesus went to heaven and was glorified, and then it was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And so from the day of Pentecost onward is the age of the comforter. Or the dispensation of the comforter, the dispensation of the promise of the Father, fulfilled. This was the promise of the Father, believed, but not yet realized, not yet fulfilled. All these people believed it. But over here, now it is a done deal. It is accomplished. Uh, look at verse 26, same chapter, 14, 26. But the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. According to Jesus, this comforter was still going to be sent by the Father. It wasn't here yet. And so many times, we use these verses all the time, right, when we talk about the Spirit. But there is something here that maybe we, we don't necessarily emphasize. It's a future promise. 
something that was to come. Brothers and sisters, we really, really don't comprehend or realize the benefits of living on this side of the cross here. What the cross accomplished for us is everything. It accomplished the total defeat of Satan. That's what the life of Christ, that's what the comforter is. You don't have to go out and try and re-defeat Satan. The life of Christ, the comforter, has the defeat of Satan in you. Can you imagine just knowing that when you go meet the temptation next time? It's not, oh, here comes that temptation. Oh, am I going to be able to be strong? Or And we go through that. This is our day in, day out, you know, Christian struggle. We meet a temptation. But when you realize and remember all the time, the victory over that temptation you already have in the life of Christ. You don't have to try and work up enough, muster up enough willpower or enough energy to, to, to overcome the temptation. It's a comforting fact to know that victory I already have if I have the life of Christ. All of a sudden, it gives you this, this confidence, this assurance that you don't have to waver. You don't have to worry. The, the temptation cannot defeat the life of Christ. Amen. Christ defeated that and every other temptation. And I'm just being practical here as far as this is how we go. This is what we go through. You know what I'm talking about, right? And when we remember that, many times we, oh, no, I'm not strong enough. Or, oh, I failed and this and that. And we go through all the remorse and trouble and the Lord picks us up. He knows we're weak. We take our eyes off Christ sometimes. But he wants us to know and understand what the comforter really is. If we understand that, it will make a big difference. Our faith can grasp a hold of it a lot more realistically when we truly comprehend. It's a done deal. Just look at the cross. He's a defeated enemy. So Jesus is saying the Father is going to send this comforter. That's the promise of the Father. Uh, next chapter, John 15, 26. There's so many others, but I just want to show you these key verses. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Again, he's referring to which point? To Pentecost. He was speaking with disciples here before he died. He's telling them, listen, when this Comforter will come, I'm going to send you this Comforter from the Father. I will do it. It's not here yet. It's coming. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today, it's been here since the day of Pentecost. Have we benefited from this? Or are we living like we're in this side? Many times this is how it is. We're living like, you know, maybe one day the Lord will help us. with More power will come. Or we look forward to the latter rain. We were talking about the latter rain earlier. One day we'll get enough power. to Brothers and sisters, no, no. All the power we need is already contained in the life of the Son. And that's been here since the day of Pentecost. Do we grasp a hold of that by faith or not? That's the key. Uh, John 16, 13 is another one. There's so many of them. John 16, 13. How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come from this point on. Again, all the future tenses. Christ was building up their expectation to realize what is coming. You can tell this was high on Christ's priority list when he was leaving. This is very shortly before his arrest. And then after his, his death and resurrection, he spends 40 days with his disciples. And before he leaves, he tells them, listen, remember this promise of the father I was telling you about all this time? Just wait in Jerusalem. In a few days, you're going to get it. This is the longing of Christ 
He came from heaven to earth. He went, lived as a man and suffered excruciating suffering. We don't even comprehend what that means. All in order to give us this life. And then we do the utmost insult to Christ and say, yeah, well, that's how it's always been. That's what we had all along. It's, it's really an insult to what Christ actually accomplished. This was, this was very, very dear to his heart. He says, you know, Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you, and the glory which you have given me, I have given them. That's what he's, he's doing all this for us so that he can give us something, something new. If we had it all along, then why did he have to come and die and suffer and go through all this trouble for 33 years? But he had to obtain an experience, brothers and sisters, a very, very rich and overcoming experience. And so I want to I want to say frankly I really I don't care who you might quote to try and prove to me that Jesus what Jesus here said did not mean what he said to try and prove that no 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 there was this divine human element over here or anything like that because this has happened brothers and sisters we are destroying we're shooting ourselves in the foot we're destroying the work of Christ when we do that Christ said it and we need to appreciate what it means. So let's not make Christ a liar. Now I want to read a couple of statements here. I'll read this one because this, this really surprised me, this statement. And, and I think it puts it really, really well. And this is from Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 933. This is what it says. The atonement of Christ sealed forever the everlasting covenant of grace. We talked about this morning, right? The atonement of Christ is where? On the cross. It sealed forever the everlasting covenant of grace. That's the ratification. That's the everlasting covenant that we talked about earlier. It's also called the covenant of grace. Here it was the point where it was sealed, where it was fulfilled. It was the fulfilling of every condition upon which God suspended the free communication of grace to the human family. Every barrier was then broken down, which intercepted the freest exercise of grace, mercy, peace, and love to the most guilty of Adam's race. That's the end of the statement. But I don't want you to miss this point here. It said, here was fulfilled every condition upon which God suspended the free communication of grace to humanity. So during all this time, the communication of divine grace to humanity was suspended. Not in its fullest sense. It was there, but not fully and completely. Why? Because it says every barrier was then broken down, which intercepted the freest exercise of that grace. So during this time, there were barriers that served as interceptors for the freest exercise of grace. Here, Christ removed those barriers for the first time. What was the barrier here? that served as an intercept and that suspended God's grace. What do you think? I know I'm asking a lot here, asking you to think after lunch like that. Very inconsiderate of me, I know, I'm sorry. But uh, what do you think? What barrier existed here and only came to an end here that intercepted the freest exercise of God's grace and served to suspend it? The what? The humanity of Christ. Yeah, that's true. The humanity of Christ only happened here. But if you think about it, think carefully. 
this 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 is the history of the earth for for about 4000 years, right? From this point to this point. Correct? When God gave the promise first time to Adam and Eve, he said from your seed there will come uh, your seed will crush the serpent's head. You remember that? What was he referring to? To this point. At this point, for the very first time in the history of sin, Satan was defeated. His head was crushed. So all during this time, brothers and sisters, Satan was undefeated. He was not crushed. Sin and Satan were not defeated all during this time. For the very first time now, a human being defeated Satan and crushed his head. And that turned the tables. This is where the great controversy was won. Very, very significant event. And so up until this time, you remember when, when Christ came to resurrect Moses? Moses is somewhere here, right? Oh, well, Sinai, sorry, somewhere here. He died. Christ came to resurrect him. What happened? Satan came and contended with Christ. Why did he contend with Christ? Because he had a right. He said, hold on, I'm not defeated. You have no right to take Moses out of the grave. He's a sinner. The wages of sin is death. What right do you have to rescue Moses? He belongs to me. And you have not defeated me. That was the, the argument. It's not spelled out that way. But this was what gave strength to his argument. You don't see him arguing over here anymore when the dead are raised, do you? He doesn't come after, for every resurrection, what are you doing? Why? He has been defeated at the cross. And the evidence is at the resurrection, Christ resurrected a number of people from the grave. Satan and sin were defeated for the very first time here. And so during all this period, that served as a hindrance, as a block. God said, I will defeat him. Now he did defeat him. As a man, through Christ Jesus, he defeated him. And so now Christ can pour out his spirit in a way that has never been seen before. He can give us this victory over sin and over Satan. In us, if we are believers, the Bible says, if we have Christ running in us, we have the life that defeated Satan and all his sins dwelling in us. Do you realize that? Boy, that should give you a boost. You go out there, it's like, you know, Satan, bring it on. You're not, you know, you're not confident in yourself. You are confident in the victory of the cross. That's why Paul says, God forbid, we read that in our lesson, right? God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. When we realize and appreciate what the cross accomplished for humanity, we will glory in the cross. This is our powerhouse. And it's because of the cross and the events after it that now we have the benefits of the cross, chiefly the promise of the Father. Abraham longed to see this and experience this. He didn't. He'll be saved. Don't worry about him. And all these people will be saved. They all believe this promise. But now... We have a realization of the problem. Now this is this another stage in the battle. We're dealing with the defeated foe. And so I just want to emphasize that, brothers and sisters, because it is of so great importance. I want to close with our verse in John 1. I think we all know this verse, but I'll make this our closing verse because it summarizes what we're talking about so well. John chapter 1 and verse... 12. John, of course, writing here his gospel after Christ ascended, after all these things happened. And in John 1 12, this is what he says. 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's the power that Jesus promised here. The reception of power, brothers and sisters, after the cross is a totally different story than the reception of power before the cross. The reception of power here that we receive, we receive Christ himself, a divine human being that comes and dwells in us by his spirit. His very own life becomes ours. That's what the new covenant is about when you said, take drink, this cup is the new covenant in my blood or in my life. In this life is this power that enables us to become the sons of God. That's why when we have the life of the Son, God looks at us as He looks on His Son. You know, the verse in Galatians says, Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the Spirit of His Son today. It's the Comforter. It's all the victories that Christ accomplished, all the obedience that Christ obeyed. He gives us the whole package. You know, sometimes we, we talk about this and people say, Yeah, that's good, brother, but, but we also have to obey. You know, we always try and emphasize obedience because we want to make sure we uphold the law. That's good and well. But you know what? The life of Christ comes complete with all his obedience. That's way better than our obedience. All we have to do is allow that to demonstrate itself in us, to manifest itself in us. Honestly, brothers and sisters, if we understand, appreciate that, it puts a totally new perspective on how we go out day in and day out and meet sin and Satan and try and keep the law and all these things. All of a sudden, it's like a big burden has been rolled off. And you realize, you know what? Jesus did indeed do it all. We don't like to emphasize that because we say all these people, the Pentecostals and the other evangelicals, they emphasize this and they talk about cheap grace and we're going to tell them what they don't talk about. The law, brother. The Sabbath, brother. And we do that so much that it has actually warped our view of how we approach God, how we approach and relate to Him, how we walk, and we have a big burden. There is many times, brothers and sisters, our Christian journey and our Christian experience as Adventists many times is a miserable forlorn journey you know what I'm talking about it's a heavy burden it's like Christian you know Pilgrim's Progress Christian going up uh, here and there carrying this big burden you know what the big burden is we believe our sins are forgiven so it's not the burden of sin it's the burden of obeying the law performing and doing what the law says that's a big burden you know why because we never can Christ he kept the law perfectly. He gives us his life. It's a done package. It's a complete deal. We don't need to add anything to it. All we need to do is cooperate with him by receiving fully what he has given us. I know when this hit me one day, I remember I literally felt like a big burden just vanished off the top of my back. I'm like, Christ really did the whole thing. If I have him, I... and all of a sudden it puts the risk of you know, you can abuse that. And that's what a lot of people do. You can abuse the grace of, of, of Christ and use your liberty as an occasion of the flesh. And Paul warns against that. But just because people abuse it doesn't mean that there isn't a true, genuine application of it. We go to the other extreme trying to counteract the abuse. And in the process, we miss the beautiful truth in the middle. The promise of the Father, brothers and sisters, does not require any adding to. It doesn't require any topping up. That's what the new covenant or the second covenant is all about. It's receiving the life of Jesus or Yeshua. or So we keep everyone happy, however you say it. It's receiving his life. We're all talking about the same person. The son of God and the son of man. And so that's why we have today, like it says in Hebrews, God has prepared some better thing for us. 
we have an experience now, the experience of Christ, brothers and sisters. I can't emphasize it enough. And you know, I, my, my goal is to tell you how beautiful it is. You know, someone say, well, how do we get that, brother? How, how do we get this, this amazing thing? That's why we read that last verse. As many as received him, to them gave you power. It's not rocket science and how we obtain this. We obtain it by faith. If you believe and receive Christ in your heart, you have the whole thing. You don't have to go do some hard work or learn theology or figure out some prophecy. All you have to do is understand, uh, just hopefully, you know, helping us to understand what it is that we receive. So that when we do receive it, we have a more intelligent way to exercise our faith. We realize, wow, this is what we have. We have all the riches of blessing contained in the life of Christ. So it's yours for the asking. If you don't know or if you haven't received it, ask and it shall be given. God has made it so simple and so easy. It's almost unbelievable. That's why we try and overcomplicate it. And so... You will experience, brothers and sisters, this power in your life because Christ has accomplished all that for us. I just pray that this will be your experience, that this will be my experience, that this will be something that will testify to others that we indeed believe that Christ lives, not in heaven, but he lives in us. Uh, didn't we sing that song? He lives, he lives in my heart, right? Does his living in our heart convey power? Like it says here, you shall receive power. Or is his living in our heart just by what we say? Christ lives in a lot of people's hearts just like by words. We profess, but what it actually means is totally foreign to us. If this is your experience, stop and pray. Say, Lord, I realize now what this is about. I want that. That's what I want. Please help me to exercise the faith I need to receive that. It's not really... You know, in keeping any more Sabbaths or, or in doing anything extra. It is really getting the life of the sun. Okay, I think you get the point. Let's have a prayer. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.